Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon features Bible teacher Clay Scroggins, and it was recorded on Sunday, May 15th. Thanks for tuning in. We'd love the chance to connect with you, so drop us a line at info at faithbridge.org. If you're in the area, join us this Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi. You can always join us online at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Clay. Well, I, I want you to um, help me fill in this little phrase um, just so that we can get this conversation started today. This will tell you a little bit about what we're going to be talking about. You know this phrase, desperate times call for, yeah, you got it. That didn't take long, right? Thanks for those of you watching online, participating with us in the communion space over here as well. Desperate times call for desperate measures, right? And and, and you know what that phrase means. It, It means that there are times in life where The circumstances are adverse. The circumstances are so challenging that the normal, the normal way of life, the the societal, the 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 accepted ways in society, the the rights and the wrongs, the do's and the don'ts, the things that you might not you might normally overlook or you might normally say, "Eh, no, 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 everything's on the table at this point. Basically, you know, you you throw the rules out the window, you throw what's accepted out the window, you go, well, hey, listen. Now we, we, we got to try, we got to go for, because desperate times call for desperate measures. Um, my name's Clay, by the way. I'm excited about having this conversation. We're reading through Luke together. And today we uh, come across Luke 8 that is filled with uh, a couple of interactions of people who experience that. They, they, they experience, they, they, they epitomize that phrase. Today we're going to talk about desperation. What do we do with desperation? If you if you um, if you don't have a Bible and you want one or you just want to borrow one, you just hold your hand up in the air, wave it around like you just do care, and they will hand you one. Um, Luke eight is where we're going to be. I, I was going to tell you real quick though. My um, as I was thinking about desperation, I, I remember there's one moment for for me that I mean it's a little playful and silly because it ended up working out, but. Uh, maybe this will just help in kind of getting you thinking along those lines of desperation. Uh, we have, uh, my wife and I live in Atlanta. We have five kids. Our oldest is about to turn 13. Our second kid just turned 11. So this story is uh, 11 years ago, but it was, it's really, um, it's what happened when, when he was born. Um, our, our first child was born via induction. She was induced. So she was a week late. And uh, I don't know what the, I don't know what your response was to that. I heard all kinds of things, but I, I have not gone through labor myself, so I withhold any comments about labor to anyone who actually has. And so, um, but as the father, I can just tell you, I loved the induction. I did because it was scheduled. You know, they tell you exactly on this date, show up, and then you're going to have a baby. It was so nice. You know, I like when things are predictable and planned, and you can, you know, know it's coming. And so, this particular day, it was actually March 29th, uh, 11 years ago. Um, we were scheduled to have an induction the next day with our son. And again, this is the way our daughter, our first child, was born. And so, I was thinking, well, hey, today is a normal day. Tomorrow, we're having a baby. That's the way, it's, it was in my mind, it was 100% what I was thinking. And I was sitting at breakfast that morning with um, a friend of mine. He's actually a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. My wife and I both went to Dallas Seminary, and uh, we actually met there. And this guy was, a, uh, we both took his classes, great professor. And he was happy, he happened to be in Atlanta for a conference. And so he and I were having breakfast 
sitting at the Cracker Barrel, having a uh, lovely meal. And I, I was in one of those seasons, I don't know if you have this, where I, I go through different seasons where I'm, you know, trying to not let my technology rule me, you know, and so trying to be real present. And so I had the ringer turned off, the phone was sitting on the, the table turned face down. Some of you already see where this is going. I pick up my phone as I'm about to get in my car, leaving this lovely meal with Dr. Dickens, and I had 17 missed phone calls from uh, bum, 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 my nine-month pregnant wife. Not only did I have 17 missed calls, but I had five text messages that escalated in severity and in threat. <laughs> the first one said, hey, babe, are you still at breakfast? The second one said, are you getting this? The third one said, in all caps, this is serious, please call me. The fourth one said, my water broke, I am going into labor, come home immediately. The fifth one said, do you enjoy your life? <laughs> I, um, I'll never forget like pulling up to our house and uh, my wife had already sent our two-year-old, she sent our two-year-old next door to our neighbors and she's standing outside, nine months pregnant, holding her luggage. And I felt like, I, I felt like I was going to die. Um, but that, that drive, that drive from there to the hospital uh, when I was thinking about this phrase, desperate times call for desperate, desperate measures, that's what I thought of. Because, um, and, and for, for any public safety officials, I just want to let you know, we are, I am so grateful for what you do. I do everything within my power to try to abide by the laws that we have that govern our nation and our states and our cities. But in this particular instance, those were a mere suggestion. <laughs> I have never driven faster I've never gone through more stop signs. I had never ignored more stop lights because desperate times call for desperate measures. I was desperate to get my wife to the hospital to make sure that this baby was not born in our car. And sure enough, we made it and it was a fabulous, fabulous ending to a uh, what was a desperate situation. But I, I, I tell you that story par partially because I do want to get the conversation started about desperation, but also because you, you have your story, and I've got my story. I've got stories that are more serious. I've got stories that are more scary, and, and so do you. In fact, a lot of times our, our seasons of desperation are really, um, sometimes they're about you know, massive financial implications. Sometimes they're about significant relationship drama. Sometimes they're genuinely life or death. But I, I want to ask you, when, when is the last time you felt desperate with God? When's the last time you felt desperate with God? Maybe you can remember a time. Maybe you're in a time right now, or maybe you, just like me, know that there are going to be other times in life where we are. But as we're going to find in Luke 8, Luke 8 is about these interactions that people had with Jesus. They came to him with so much desperation. And they weren't just desperate with him. They were desperate for him. When's the last time you felt desperate for God? And, and, and what I mean there is that there are times where we feel desperate with him, meaning, God, I need you to move. God, I need you to provide. God, I need you to do something. But then there are other times where we go, God, I need you. I mean, the, 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 
the normal options of life aren't going to work. The, the normal places I would go, the, the doctors, financial situations, uh, wisdom, other resources, they, they fall short in what I actually need. The only thing that can help me out in this situation is you. And a lot of you know what that feels like, and others maybe, maybe you don't. But today, what I want to talk about is what, what, do, we, what do we learn from God? What, what, do we, what do we understand about Jesus? Jesus, I, I love this phrase, this title of him, Paul, the Apostle Paul called him the image of the invisible God, the image of the invisible God. He said, if you want to know what God's like, watch Jesus. He was God incarnate, God in flesh on earth. And he was teaching us what, what can we understand about God in the middle of our desperation. Maybe you're at a situation where you've tried every other option. You've done everything else you know to do, and maybe you're here today, maybe you're watching today because you are at your wit's end, you're at your last resort. The great thing we're gonna learn about Jesus today, this is the big idea, is that he seems willing to be the first response to your last resort. If you've tried everything else and you've run out of options, he says, you can come to me, I'll be your first response when you're at your last resort. And that's certainly what he was. In the middle of Luke 8, we see this man who, uh, they, they call this man the demoniac. He was, he was filled with demons. They were heckling him. They were harming him. They were torturing him. In a couple of weeks, uh, Ken's going to talk about that passage, which I'm so grateful for because it is so complicated, hard to understand, confusing, and complex. And there's no one better to handle that than him. Today, we're going to talk about one that's a little more straightforward, one that we can all relate to a little bit. And in the middle of this story about this man, there's actually an interjection of this woman, a third interaction that someone has with desperation, feeling desperate for Jesus. Luke chapter 8, verse 46. Here's how it begins. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him. He returned from dealing with the, this man that we know as the demoniac. When he returns, there was a crowd welcoming him. And this is not unusual. Everywhere Jesus went, there was a big crowd. There was all, people were waiting on him. People had heard about him. People were wanting to get a piece of the action. They wanted to see it for themselves. They were all expecting him. When a man named Jairus when a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came to Jesus and fell at his feet, pleading with him to come to his house. Now, in the case of the demoniac, we don't know his name. He doesn't have a lot of stature in the community. There probably is a corollary between how important, how famous, how popular, how meaningful, so to speak, in this culture that this person was, that we didn't know the demoniac's name, and then there's a woman who's going to interrupt, and we don't know her name, but we know Jairus's name. Jairus was a synagogue leader. Now, what this means, this is a little bit different than a rabbi. It's a little bit different than a Pharisee. A synagogue leader would have been kind of the, the business leader, the one that managed the day-to-day -day of the synagogue. This would have been an important role. This person was probably educated, probably very intelligent, this person probably came from a good family. This person had all the pedigree. This person probably had a good bit of wealth. This person had a good bit of notoriety. There wasn't a doctor in the town that this person couldn't call and say, I need to get an appointment now that wouldn't take his call. Everyone knew Jairus. There's this massive crowd there waiting for Jesus, and Jairus works his way through the crowd. How do we know he was desperate? Because a man with this much sophistication wouldn't have done what Jairus did unless he was in a bad spot. 
He comes and falls at Jesus' feet, begging him not just to move on his behalf, but to actually move with him, to come with him. Jesus, I'm in, I have a situation where I need you now. I need you to come with me. I need your help, but I need your presence because we don't know what else to do. Maybe you know the story and you know what was wrong with him, but if you don't, I think you can understand his desperation when you hear this part of it, that the reason why he was so desperate, the reason why he was begging, the reason why he fell to his knees is because his only daughter, his only daughter, a girl of about 12 years, was dying. Some things just don't change no matter what year it happens, right? Parents shouldn't bury their kids. There's something about sick kids that just grabs our heart. We think that shouldn't be. Those of you that have kids, you can relate. But those of you that have ever loved a child, you can relate. If you have a niece or a nephew, or if you teach school, if you work in healthcare, you, you, you get that. Everybody, it's universal. It transcends no matter what you believe about faith. Everyone could understand this. That when your 12-year-old little girl is sick, you'll do anything. Now, my wife and I, as I mentioned, we've got a couple of kids, and our, our oldest is about to turn 13. She's currently 12. And I, I love all of our kids, but there's something about a firstborn girl for a dad that, I mean, ever since she was born, I'm telling you, um, she's got me. There's nothing she could hardly ask me that I wouldn't say yes to. I mean, she is amazing. And the thought of her being deathly ill grabs me in such a real way. I'm sure you can relate at some level as well. His daughter is dying. His 12-year-old little baby girl is dying. And he goes to Jesus begging him to come with him. Now Luke says it a little little different. We're going to jump back in Luke for just a second. But I want to just show you what Mark says, I want to show you Mark's account because the way he puts this is just so simple and pure and beautiful, but powerful. Look at how Jesus responds to Jairus's desperate situation. Mark says this, these five simple words, so Jesus went with him. (laughs) Isn't that so beautiful? He was desperate. He was begging. He probably thought, I don't know what the crowd's going to be like. I don't know how bad it's going to be. He gets there. He's thinking, oh, it's worse than I thought. There's so many people here. How did everybody hear? And so now he's at the back, maybe thinking, how am I going to work my way to the front? This is never going to happen. It's never going to work. He sees his moment. He makes his break. He finds Jesus. He gets on his knees and he thinks, I got one shot. Eminem starts playing in the background. Like the tension is thick. And he's going, this is my moment. He says, Jesus, my daughter is dying. I need you to come. And Mark says, so Jesus went with him. (laughs) That is awesome. Because I would hope that he would do the same for you. Everything about him says that he would do the same thing for you and for me. 
that if we would just beg him, if we would get on our knees and say, God, I need you to move. Would you please come with me? He says, I'm already there. Yeah, for sure. I'll go with you. So just put yourself in Jairus' shoes, all right? I really want you to feel what he's feeling. You know that feeling when you're, uh, maybe when you're late somewhere and you're in traffic and you're trying to change lanes and no matter what lane you get in, like it just feels like everything slows down, you know? You're checking out somewhere. You're like, we got to hurry. We got to go. And nobody else seems to get it. I would imagine he was agitated, that he was irritated, that he was rushed. He was impatient. He probably was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. Let's go. We don't know, was it around the corner? Was it across the town? Was it the next town over? We don't know anything about how far this journey was going to be, but no matter how far it was, you know Jairus was in a hurry. He was going, let's go. We got to hustle. Giddy up. Let's, we we got to do this now. We got to move. Come on. We got to go. But the crowd wasn't participating because they all had their own need. They, they had their situation as well. Back to Luke 8, Luke says as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. So many people that they almost crushed him. And we don't have time to do this whole story justice, but something happens. A woman interrupts in the middle of this. Jairus is, he's so, he's, he's going, oh my goodness, I've got, a, I've got a glimmer of hope, but we've got to hurry. And a woman a woman whose name we don't even know, a woman who says, and if you look at all the accounts, it says that she had this situation herself where she had been bleeding for 12 years and it hadn't gotten better, it had only gotten worse. In fact, she had used all of her money. I mean, in this society, a man might be able to get some decent medical care. A woman had a much harder time getting good medical care, but let alone a woman of her stature. And, and, and what we've learned about her is that she spent all of her money trying to get better and it didn't work. In fact, it only made it worse. We don't know if she got taken advantage of, if she got bamboozled, if she got swindled, but she, she was having such a hard time getting rid of this problem. She didn't know what else to do. And the fact that her situation was a, a mess, the fact that her situation dealt with blood. It made it even more difficult. I mean, she was the lowest on the totem pole. Jairus is as high as it gets. He's a man of distinction and honor. And this woman was an outcast. But here's what's beautiful is that Jesus says to Jairus, the powerful, I'll go with you. And he says to this woman who we don't even know her name, he says, I'll stop for you as well. He's showing us something. If you want to know who God is for, he says, I'm not just for the rich. I'm not just for the famous. I'm not just for the powerful. I'm not just for those that have it all together, educated in the right place, came from the right family. I'm, from the, I'm for the woman who was on the outside looking in. And he stops there and has an interaction with her because she got his attention. She comes up and she thinks in her mind, if I could just touch him, maybe that'll help. And so she works her way to the front and grabs the tassel on his cloak. And Jesus stops and he says, someone touched me. Who touched me? And his disciples look at him like, you're going crazy. What do you mean who touched you? Look around, Einstein. There's people everywhere. Loads of people have touched you. What do you mean who touched you? Could have been him or her, him or her, him or her. There's thousands of people here. Jesus, no, 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 this is different. Someone touched me, but they did it with faith. Someone touched me and believed that I could heal them. Someone touched me and I felt power go out from my body. 
And he stops, much to Jairus' chagrin, and he finds this woman, and he says, tell me your name. Tell me your situation. Tell me what's going on with you. And then he looks at her and says, ma'am, your faith has healed you. You can go in peace. Meanwhile, Jairus has no peace. He's going, yeah, speaking of go, can we go? Can we hurry this up? We got to do this now. And what made it all worse is while Jesus was still speaking, I assume still speaking to this woman, someone came from the house of Jairus and delivered him this awful, tragic news. Jairus, it's too late. I'm sorry. It's too late. Your daughter is dead. Jesus is too late. So don't bother the teacher anymore. And I don't know why when I was reading this again, that word bother jumped off the page to me. Have you ever felt like a bother to God? Ever felt like you... Listen, I know you got the world to run. You've got, I mean, there's people way worse off than me. There's all kinds of situations. I mean, every day we watch the news and there's just more tragedy and difficult situations and awful circumstances. But I I, I just can't stop asking you. You're my only hope. And maybe you have felt like you're bothering him. Here's the great news about God is that we shouldn't project our human instinct, our human responses onto an almighty, unconditionally loving, all-powerful God. God's not bothered by you. God wasn't bothered by Jairus. In the middle of this awful news, God incarnate, God in flesh, stops and looks at Jairus and says, Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. Come on, keep believing. Don't give up hope you don't realize that you're in the powerful, that you're in the presence of the almighty. So just keep believing the same faith that brought you here, let it continue to push you on. So they kept walking, they keep going. And when they arrive at the house of Jairus, Jesus did not let anyone in other than Peter and John and James and then Jairus and Jairus's wife. Now, we don't know why. We don't know why did he only take these people in. Was it because he needed people that were supporting him? He needed other people that were believing as well? There's some interaction with faith that we can't understand. But I just got to imagine for Peter, James, and John, they were probably looking at, you know, Jesus said, you three, come with me. And they're probably like, us? Are we in trouble? Is everything cool? Jesus, we don't know them. I mean, I've heard of Jairus, but I don't know them. This would be awkward. Why don't you just take them? They'd be good. No, no, I want all of you to come as well. So just put yourself in their shoes. They're standing against the back wall. I mean, this was a day that they will never forget. This was a day that I'm sure they talked about their entire life. They probably looked at each other being like, how cool is it that we were in the room when that happened? See, meanwhile, all the other people were wailing and mourning. Now, now um, this was a sign of wealth in a way. This was a sign of how much you love someone. This was a sign of status and stature. They would actually hire people to wail and mourn. The, the more mourners and wailers you had, the wealthier you were. And so 
for a lot of these people, it didn't necessarily mean anything. Some of them, it really did. Some of them knew Jairus and knew his wife and knew this precious 12-year-old girl, and they were devastated as well. But some of these people were just paid to be there. They were just paid because Jairus was a wealthy man. It was a sign of his wealth that they had this many people outside making this commotion. And Jesus looked at them and said, stop, stop wailing. She's not dead, she's just asleep. Which had to be pretty offensive to them, right? Because they're like, we know the difference between asleep and dead, Jesus, thank you. Uh, when our kids were real little, in fact, we still do this with some of the little, smaller ones, but when we're walking somewhere to a playground or a park or something, we'll see a squirrel that maybe, you know, had taken a terrible fall from a, a you know, tree or something. We'll say, oh, look, that's sweet. That squirrel is sleeping on the side of the road, right? But Jesus obviously knew the difference. But it is confusing because he does use this, he uses these terms interchangeably throughout the New Testament. He'll say, at different times and point, he'll say that in the next life, it is as if we were just asleep in this life because there's a resurrection coming where those who believe in me will be woken up from their sleep. He's saying death is so temporary, it's like when you go to sleep tonight and you wake up tomorrow, that's the way the next life is going to be, that there will be this resurrection where you will wake up for those of you that have put your faith in Jesus. And so I am, I'm sure if you're Peter, James, and John in this moment, you're confused going, we don't exactly know what he means by this. But the whalers and the mourners did not take kindly to this. They laughed at Jesus. They mocked Jesus. They made fun of Jesus because they knew, no, the girl is dead. A few of us have been in the room. She's not breathing. We know the difference. She's not asleep. She's dead. But Jesus, in this moment, with Jairus, his wife, Peter, James, and uh, uh, Peter, John, James, walks in there and has this incredible moment. You can just imagine the way this room probably felt, the desperation, the sadness. She's laying down on this mat, probably lifeless and Jesus gets down on a knee and picks up her hand and looks at this little girl with so much compassion and care and so much power and might and he says my child get up now I like how Mark puts it because Mark tells us exactly what he said in Aramaic this was a culture where they would have spoken the native Greek tongue, but around each other in personable settings, they would have spoken this language called Aramaic. And Mark tells us that what Jesus actually said is he gets down on a knee, grabs this girl's hand, and he says to her, Talitha, kum. Meaning, little girl, get up. But I just gotta imagine that this was probably a phrase that Jairus had used before. I mean, this was not something you would say to your girlfriend or it's not something you say to your friend at school. People didn't use this unless it was, a, it was a term of endearment. It was an affectionate term that a father or a grandfather would say to his little girl. 
And so Jairus probably maybe had flashbacks in this moment as Jesus said this of thinking all the times before that he had said this same thing. I mean, this precious little 12-year-old girl at one point was one year old and learning how to walk and doing that cute thing that one-year-olds do where they kind of wobble and they fall and then they get back up again. And he probably looked at her at some point in her life and said, Talitha, kum, little girl, my precious little girl, get up. She's five, six, seven years old out on the playground. He's probably standing over the side talking to some dads. She's out there running around, kicking a ball. Maybe somebody runs over her, and he probably yells out at her and says, Talitha, kum, my precious little girl, stand up. Come on, you can do this. I mean, she was 12, so she was entering into that phase, that preteen phase where she was probably sleeping later. I mean, Jairus had probably walked into where she was sleeping, opened up the lights, opened up the curtains. She was late for school. He probably says it with a little more urgency. Talitha Kum, my precious little girl, get up. Let's go. It's time to go. He had said this before, and what's remarkable is she was 12 years old. Remember how long the woman had been bleeding? How long had she been bleeding? 12 years. I don't know why Jesus did this, but he picked these two situations where 12 years earlier, something beautiful happened and something tragic happened. But meanwhile, 12 years later, he's about to put his glory and power on display in both their cases. He tells this little girl, Talitha Kum, my precious little girl, so personable, so compassionate, Kum, get up. And her spirit returned, and at once, she stood up. Wow. I'm sure Peter and John are just poking each other, being like, can you believe it? Oh, my goodness. She's up. I'm sure Jairus and his wife are staring at each other, going, I'm dumbfounded. Everybody's just paralyzed with the emotion of the moment. And Jesus says, hey, come on. Let's get her something to eat. Somebody door dash some Chick-fil-A. Let's get this girl some nuggets. What, 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 are we, what are we doing here? Come on. Celebration ensued. Her parents were astonished, and Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Why? Well, because the time hadn't arrived. There was going to come a time where all he wanted people talking about was a particular resurrection. But this wasn't the one, and now wasn't the time. And so he says, no, just wait. There will come a day where every knee will bow to the one who's been resurrected. But for now... Let's just enjoy this. So what do we learn? What, what, what do we learn about this? What do, we, what do we learn about how we're to respond, how we're to approach God when we feel desperate? Maybe you feel that way now. Maybe you remember a situation. Maybe you know, like me, there's a situation coming. But I want to take the last few minutes. I want to just give you, I want to try to frame this up a little bit. I want to just try to give you, here's a couple of my thoughts on what I feel like God spoke to me, what God did with me. I hope that he'll do the same thing with you. What, what, does, 
What does this teach us? This, what, is, what does this interaction teach us about how we should approach our Heavenly Father when we feel desperate? Here's the first one is that God is not turned off by our desperation. That's great news. God's not put off. He's not taken back. He's not going, whoa, get it. hang on a second. Don't talk to me that way. No, no, no. You, I need a few more these and thous before you come to me. He says, no, 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 no. He says, bring it. He's not turned off by our desperation, but the desperation is not his goal. His goal is not to keep us desperate. His goal is not to, number two, God's goal is not, it's not desperation. God's not trying to work circumstances in such a way that you find yourself in desperate times. Does he cause them? Does he allow them? I don't know, but either way, they, have, they, they happen. But his goal is not just that you would be desperate. He welcomes it. He says, I'm not turned off by it. But God's goal is dependence. And he knows that as your desperation grows, your dependence grows. As you feel more desperate, you also feel more dependent. Those of you that have been through a situation like that, you know. You, you would never look back and go, I'm so grateful that it happened. I mean, you lost someone. You couldn't find a job. You hit a financial crisis. But you know in the middle of that desperation, you were crying out to God. You were constantly begging him, God, if you don't come through, it's not going to happen. The goal is not desperation, but God certainly uses our desperation God knows that desperation, number three, desperation always leads to dependence. Desperation always causes us to be more dependent upon him. And that dependence is what deepens our relationship with him. And that's the goal. Listen, I, one of my least favorite parts of this story is the fact that this little girl was raised from the dead. Right? Because it tells us, okay, so you can. So will you in my situation? Or even harder, why did you not in this other situation? I, I hope he moves on your behalf. I hope he answers your question. I hope he responds to your desperation. But whether he does or whether he doesn't, these desperate times, they, it deepens our relationship with him because it causes us to be dependent on him. So if you're desperate for him, if you're at a situation where you don't know where else to turn, take it all to him. Bring all that desperation to him. Be fully dependent on him. But one word of caution to the rest of us who maybe you're not in a situation where you don't feel desperate. You don't have to wait for a desperate situation to realize how dependent on him you actually are. You don't have to wait for the bottom to drop out. You don't have to wait for the health diagnosis. You don't have to wait for the hard situation. No, all of us can, whether we feel desperate or not, we can still wake up today to the reality of how dependent on him we really are.
And that's my hope. That's my hope for all of us, whether you're in a season of desperation or not. So for those of you that are in a season, you're in a challenging time, a trying time, we just want to let you know we're with you. We're for you. In fact, we're going to play this song, and during the song, we're going to have some of our prayer team that's going to come, and they would love to just pray with you. Sometimes when you're in the middle of a desperate situation, you need to know that somebody else is with you. And today, we just want to let you know we're with you. And for those of you that are not in one, I hope today that maybe you'll use this time to go, God, I don't need to be desperate to be dependent on you. I'm already dependent on you. And I'm sorry I don't always realize it. I'm sorry I don't always think about it, but I need you. I need you now more than I ever have. And I would just invite you to come use this altar as a place to pray, as a place to be prayed for, as we all realize how much we need him. Father, I just, um, I pray today that whether we're in it or not, that we realize it. God, I, I don't, I don't want to have to go through what Jairus went through. God, I pray for health and safety and success and good times for all of us. But God, we have no idea. We have no idea what's around the corner. We have no idea what's coming down the road. We have no idea how dependent on you we are. God, every little breath in our lung is a gift from you, the creator. And I pray today that we would walk around with that wide-eyed realization that I'm only here, I'm only awake, I'm only standing up, I'm only moving today because of you. And that we would live with that desperate realization that we need you. We need you when we're desperate, we need you when we're not. That we are dependent upon you the Almighty. And so today we just declare that we are either physically on our knees or we're on our knees in our heart just calling out to you, telling you that we need you. I need you. And we thank you that just as you came with Jairus, that you'll come with us, that you will go with us. Thank you for Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.